tired today. And there's a reason for that. It was hot. That's actually not the reason. The reason I'm so tired today is because I had to go to work. And you know why I had to go to work? Why? Because I have not yet won Vaximillion. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, neither have I. So. Welcome to An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And my name is Steve. And we're not independently wealthy yet. No. Fingers but crossed, though. There's another drawing this week. I'll tell you what. You can keep the traffic in Cincinnati, Ohio. They need to build another bridge, and that's all I'm going to say. It was very scary. Where else in the United States can you have two major interstates to come together within feet of a three-lane bridge, which now is only two-lane because of construction, and they... Normally, I don't mind going over bridges, like, I, I kind of like bridges, but we went down um, to the Nashville area this weekend and went camping. Happy birthday, Brandon's Divers, um, with our some friends of ours. And uh, and we had to come back, of course, over the bridge, the bridge that, that links Ohio to Kentucky. And uh, it Steve was kind enough to point out how old and rusted some of the trussles were and how uh, it, if there's an accident on that bridge, we're all just kind of out of luck. It was only, yeah, it was only a couple months ago, a truck got in a wreck on that bridge and it caught fire and they had to shut the bridge (sighs) down. I it so much. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the bridge going over to Memphis where there's a crack in the bridge right now. Yeah, we, we Talked about this, touched touched in on a little bit on our Doomsday episode, but um, there our infrastructure kind of sucks a little bit. Well, there's only so many bridges across the Ohio River at Cincinnati, and if one shuts down, you know everyone makes a beeline to one of the other bridges, and it it just doesn't work. And so you can take the bypass west, which. Normally is fine, but when they're directing people because of all the construction to go to the bypass, you know, you got traffic backed up for four or five miles to exit to take 275 east or west. It just, there's there's no easy and, way around it. it yeah. And, go to Indianapolis and go through Louisville, I guess. And when we were driving too, we had been on the road for a very long time. And so by the time we got there, we were just ready to be home. It was just it was a fun, a fun trip while we were camping, but the drive there and back was not always enjoyable. But you know what? Um, it's interesting that you should bring up the bridge between Ohio and Kentucky. Yeah, and my whining right now doesn't match up with tonight's tale, which is really a tale of perseverance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard or read about a story with so many attempts and so many setbacks and, in life. And so many jobs. And yet he <laughs> kept coming back. Now, admittedly, some setbacks were of his own doing, hmm. and some were just beyond anybody's control, like the stock market crash and the Great Depression and things like that. But I researching this story, I lost account of all the different jobs and all the different setbacks this guy had. But I can almost guarantee that no matter where you are listening to us, anywhere in the world, you have had this product, his product. Maybe it was at a summer picnic. Perhaps there was no time for you to fix supper, and you just made a quick trip to one of his restaurants for a quick meal. Maybe it was for a quick meal on a road trip. Around these parts, as I'm sure in many other places, we have a tradition of bringing food to funerals to help feed the family Mm -hmm. and help feed all the visitors. Sure. And so maybe at a funeral home you've had this. Maybe you've had it after church, at a church gathering for the congregation after service. Mm -hmm. It was probably brought to you in a bucket. (laughs) Y'all know what I'm talking about by now. On my first night in Germany after going through my training and getting stationed in Germany while walking through town looking for something to eat, I saw one of his restaurants. Now, I didn't eat there because it was my first night in Germany. I found a guest house, and I had a schnitzel. (laughs) Of course you did. But on occasion, 
I would go there to get a meal to remind me of home. And you know what? It tasted just the same in Germany as it did in Ohio. You know what we're talking about? Of course you do, Kim. I know what we're talking about. Do you want to tell everybody else what we're talking about? Well, if they've read the title, they know what we're talking (laughs) about, too. We're talking about Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I would like to say that this is, it's summertime, and in the summertime we like to do series. Uh, And so this is the first in a probably at least four-part, maybe even five-part series. You think? Um, I think so. I think there are enough that we can fill easily five. Yeah. Um, So our summer series this year is going to be on... Um, the creators of foods that kind of help shape America. And we were um, kind of, there's a, this, we, we got the idea from watching, there's a History Channel show that is basically the same thing on the foods that built America. Um, and so we're going to touch on some of the ones that were featured in there, but we're also going to touch Try on. Try to find people that weren't featured. Sure, yeah. yeah. So we'll, um, so obviously we're going to talk about Colonel Sanders today. Um, we might talk about Milton Hershey. We might talk about the Keebler Elves. We're not really sure who we're going to talk about yet. Um, so stay tuned. But that's, uh, this is the first in a series of um, food people. Food people, yeah. What memories do you have of Kentucky Fried Chicken? So... When I, I, growing up, we had KFC occasionally, and I remember that my parents, there's two distinct memories that I have of, of Kentucky Fried Chicken, which now is KFC. It used to be called Kentucky, Kentucky Fried, Fried Chicken, Chicken, and they rebranded some time ago. But Well, just as we'll learn, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken it. went through a lot of changes, yeah. just like the Colonel did. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was a kid, my mom, I feel like she always liked the extra crispy one, and I didn't. And so she would always get the extra crispy one. Spoiler alert, neither did the colonel. <laughs> she would always get the extra crispy one. And I was always like, Mom, this is there's so much breading on this. Like, why just get the breading? You don't even eat the like it's so much to get to the chicken. Just get the regular kind. Um, so that and the mashed potatoes. I've never been a big fan of KFC's mashed potatoes. Neither was the colonel. <laughs> but we'll get to that. Um, but so those are two of my memories. The most, when I think of KFC though, and I'm sure, I don't know how the Colonel would feel about this memory actually. And you might remember this memory because you were a part of this memory. Um, Our goddaughter Chelsea went with us one year to a family vacation down in Florida. And we, I also, so also I'm terrified of seagulls, like phobic. Steve will attest to this. I have been known to cross the street in tears when I saw a seagull. So we went to, we took two of the three kids and Chelsea with us uh, down to Florida to the beach. And we stopped at KFC on the way to the beach. And we got a bucket of chicken that we were going to like picnic on the beach. And so, you know, um, Steve and the other two kids were in the water playing at the ocean. And Chelsea and I were sitting there eating chicken. Chelsea literally was taking a bite of chicken. Like it was a chicken breast, I think. And she had it up to her mouth and was biting down on it. And out of nowhere, this seagull swoops down behind her, literally snatches it out of her hands, out of her mouth and flies off. And I freaked out Chelsea luckily knows about my fear of seagulls. And so she made a joke that kind of like helped calm me down a little bit, but it just, I I still, first I just kind of equate Kentucky Fried Chicken with seagulls now, which probably is not good. I love, I love KFC. Like I like the taste of their chicken, but I can't ever eat it without thinking of that day at the beach. Herbs and spices. Yeah. So that's my, that's my KFC memory. And it always takes me back to that traumatic day at the beach whenever I have it. Well, today's episode is about Colonel Harlan David Sanders and the story of Kentucky Fried Chicken. So Kim, Take it from here. Harlan David Sanders was born on September 9th, 1890. In a a four-room house, which seems really big for 1890. I don't know. I feel like a lot of times we hear... think about it. Yeah. There's a kitchen. There's two bedrooms and a living room. Oh, yeah, I guess I'm thinking of a four-bedroom house now. Four-room house located three miles. That's five kilometers east of Henryville, Indiana. It seems like a lot of our national heroes like this start out from humble beginnings and And Harlan Sanders is no, um, no different. 
He was the oldest of three children born to Wilbur David and Margaret Ann Sanders. His mother was of Irish and Dutch descent, and his family attended the Advent Christian Church. His father was a mild and affectionate man who worked his 80-acre farm until he broke his leg after a fall. He then worked as a butcher in Henryville for two years. Sanders' mother was a devout Christian and a strict parent, continuously warning her children of the evils of alcohol, tobacco, gambling, and whistling on Sundays. Whistling on Sundays? I, I didn't know that was a bad thing. So bad. You probably weren't allowed to play the drums either. After his father died in 1895, Harlan's mother got work in a tomato cannery, and the young Harlan was left to look after and cook for his siblings. Now, remember, he was born in 1890. His dad died in 95, so at five years old, he's starting to take care of his siblings, and by the age of seven, he had learned some skills that would eventually lead to his fame and fortune. It was reported that he became skilled with bread and vegetables and improving meat. And obviously this is going to become vital in his story. He and his brothers and sisters foraged for food, which kind of is a little bit sad, but also I guess that's something that you do in 1895. Um, While their mother was away for days at a time for work. In 1899, his mother remarried to Edward Park, But apparently Edward had passed away not long after they got married because the 1900 census reported um, Mrs. Sanders as being a widow. Well, she wasn't Mrs. Sanders. Well, the former Mrs. Sanders. She was. Yeah, I guess she was. Yeah. Yeah. She's now Mrs. Park, I guess. Okay. um, And then when he was 10, Harlan started work as a farmhand. So in 1902, Sanders' mother remarried William Brodus, and the family moved to Greenwood, Indiana. Sanders didn't have a good relationship with his new stepfather, and in 1903, he dropped out of seventh grade and went to live and work on a nearby farm. He later claimed that algebra is what drove me off. I get it. I get it. I get it, Harlan. Same friend. Didn't like algebra. Other math I would like, but not algebra. (laughs) And I'm not going to mention why in high school I don't like algebra. Oh. But that's okay. I feel like there's a story there. Yeah, there is. But <laughs> okay. That teacher still may be around. Oh. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> so at age 13, Harlan left home and took a job painting horse carriages in Indianapolis. When he was 14, he moved to southern Indiana to work as a farmhand. And now for the next Several years between 1906 to 1930, he had a lot of different jobs. A lot of different jobs. In 1906, with his mother's approval, Sanders left the area to live with his uncle in New Albany, Indiana. His uncle worked for the streetcar company, and Sanders got a job as a conductor. So he's only 16 at this point. He's still relatively young. That same year, he falsified his date of birth and enlisted in the United States Army in October of 1906. Still had to be 18. To join mm. the army then. Which seems kind of, I don't know. I, I, I guess I just have a warped view of history because I feel like there were a lot of under 18 joining the army in the We hear a lot of the stories the because, days. yeah, we hear a lot of those stories. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's a very good checks and balances on. Well, there wasn't. I mean, it's yeah. not like today. I guess that's true. So, um. He finished his military service as a wagoneer in Cuba. As a wagoneer, he drove the wagons and cared for his team of horses. And he was honorably discharged a year after joining in February 1907 at the age of 17. So he was honorably discharged before he was even legally allowed to join. He then moved to Sheffield, Alabama to be near where his uncle lived. His brother Clarence was there and he'd also moved in order to escape their stepfather. Their uncle worked for the Southern Railway and got a job for Harlan there as a blacksmith's helper in the workshops. And after only two months, Sanders moved to Jasper, Alabama, where he got a job cleaning out the ash pans of trains from the Northern Alabama Railroad when they'd finished their runs. I wonder why he moved on. Maybe his better job, better pay? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems like they're both kind of not the greatest job. I mean, working at a blacksmith shop, I'm sure, is hot and dirty. And cleaning ash from trains is probably also hot and dirty maybe one paid for better than another but you know what i take out of this though what's that he was willing to do the hard dirty oh, work. absolutely he, you know, that's just how he was raised and he was willing to 
put this work and effort into it. Yeah. So by this time, he's not quite 18, I don't think, or right around 18. Um, and by this time, he had already had a job as a um, streetcar conductor as a, in the Army. Um, he worked as for the Southern Railway, and then he got a job cleaning out trains all before he was 18. He progressed to become a fireman, which is not what we think of as a fireman. It's a steam engine stoker. Um, And he worked at that job for nearly three years. So he stopped job hopping there for a little while until he was fired for insubordination after he got sick, which I feel like there's probably more to that story. Yeah, well, apparently his temper is a thing that we'll hear about more as we get into this story. Sanders found work as a laborer with the Norfolk and Western Railway in 1909. While working on the railroad, he met Josephine King of Jasper, Alabama, and they were married shortly afterwards on June 15, 1909 in Jasper, Alabama. Congratulations. Congratulations, Harlan. They would go on to have three children, Margaret Josephine Sanders, born on March 29th, 1910, in Jasper, Alabama, and she ended up passing away on October 19th, 2001, in West Palm Beach, Florida. Hmm. Harlan David Sanders Jr. was born on April 23rd, 1912, in Tuscumbia, Alabama, and he passed away on September 15th, 1932, in Martinsville, Indiana, from an infected tonsils. Oh, that's kind of sad. Yeah. And the last child, Mildred Marie Sanders Ruggles, born October 15th, 1919, in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And she passed away on September 21st, 2010, in Lexington, Kentucky. Oh, so the girls lived pretty long lives. Yeah, they... Yeah. Um, that's so sad, though, that, that his, his son died. Yeah. Relatively young. Yeah. Well, he then found work as a fireman on the Illinois Central Railroad, and he and his family moved to Jackson, Tennessee... Um, He really liked the railroad. So I wonder if it was work that he understood or if the pay was good or because there was plenty of work with the railroads or kind of what's going on. Um, But I'm guessing that these many jobs that he keeps bouncing around has to do with his temper. Oh, um, it does. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but, uh, you know, he would get fired from a railroad, but he did. You're right. He understood the work. And so he yeah. went. He went to a railroad to find. So he's in an industry at least. Yeah, like he, he's job hopping within an industry. It's something he knows. Yeah. Yeah. By night, Sanders studied law by correspondence through LaSalle Extension University. Sanders lost his job at Illinois Central <laughs> Railroad after getting into a fight with another employee. Oh. Sanders then found a job with Rock Island Railroad. And during this period, Josephine and the children went to live with their parents. That's probably not good either. Well, I mean, we don't know the situation. He may not be able to, you know, we don't know how much he was making or the living situation. So I don't think that would have been that uncommon. Mm -hmm. I don't know. After a while, Sanders began to practice law in Little Rock, which he did for three years, earning enough in fees for his family to move with him, in with him. So apparently it was the money. They just couldn't pay the bills, huh? Yeah. But here fate of his own doing ended his legal career after a courtroom brawl with his own client, and that destroyed his reputation Holy cow, as like a lawyer. A brawl? A brawl. Like Probably that's in the not courtroom. Even a, well, it says a courtroom brawl. <laughs> yeah. So it's not even like a disagreement or a single punch. It is a brawl. That's a totally uh, different thing. Yeah, he's described as a hothead. Sanders hit a real low during this period of his life. You think? His biographer, John Ed Pierce, wrote, Sanders had encountered repeated failure largely through bullheadedness, a lack of self-control, impatience, and a self-righteous lack of diplomacy. Wow. You nailed it. (laughs) This explains his moving from job to job. I mean, yeah, when you get into a... A brawl in the courtroom with your client. I guess because that's the thing. Like, there's even to me, there's a difference between a fight and a brawl. Like, in my mind, when I picture a fight, I picture like maybe a couple punches and then a brawl. I picture my brawl like all over the desk. Yeah, like throwing chairs and rolling around on the floor and maybe breaking a beer bottle. Like, well, not in the courtroom. There was no beer bottles in the courtroom. You know what? I bet there was one that appeared out of nowhere because that's just how a brawl works. Following this incident, Sanders was forced to move back in with his mother in Henryville, 
and he went to work as a laborer on the Pennsylvania Railroad, work that he was familiar with. In 1916, the family moved to Jeffersonville, where Sanders got a job selling life insurance for the Prudential Life Insurance Company. I feel like I could make so many jokes here. Yeah, well. Like the fact that how embarrassing and humiliating does it have to be that you got disbarred and you had to move in with your mom. And then I feel like if you're going to sell life insurance, who better to sell it than somebody that can't help but get into fights, right? Like I guess. basically like a, like a self-perpetuating kind of, kind of job. He was eventually fired for insubordination at the life insurance company as well. And so he moved to Louisville and got a sales job with Mutual Benefit Life of New Jersey. And in 1920, Harlan Sanders established a ferry boat company, which operated a boat on the Ohio River between Jeffersonville and Louisville. Sure could have used that this weekend. Oh, he canvassed for funding, becoming a minority shareholder himself, and was appointed secretary of the company. Now, the ferry was an instant success, probably. It would have been this weekend. Right, that's what I'm saying, probably for those same reasons. Probably when that bridge across the Ohio (laughs) River was built. Now, around 1922, he took a job as a secretary at the Chamber of Commerce in Columbus, Indiana. He admitted that he wasn't very good at the job, and he resigned after less than a year. And then uh, Sanders cashed in his ferry boat company shares for $22,000, which is the equivalent of $334,000 today. So he was making a pretty chunk of change. And he used the money to establish a company manufacturing acetylene lamps, um, which are... The is that isn't that what they use in tort or in welding? Yeah, acetylene, and then back in the old days in the coal mines, they would use acetylene headlamps to light the yep. to light. Okay. Yeah. Um, now again, fate not of his own stepped in. The venture failed after Delco from right here in Dayton, Ohio, introduced an electric lamp that it sold on credit. Sanders moved to Winchester, Kentucky, to work as a salesman for the Michelin Tire Company. And he lost his job in 1924, not because of a fight, but because Michelin closed its New Jersey manufacturing plant. I've I've been to Winchester, Kentucky, but I don't want to talk about that. There's a lot of things you don't want to talk about this episode. (laughs) That's right. I know why you don't want to talk about Winchester, Kentucky, though. It has to do with the... I don't want to talk about it, Kim. Just move on. In 1924, by chance, he met the general manager of Standard Oil of Kentucky, who asked him to run a service station in Nicholasville. In 1930, the station closed, though, as a result of the Great Depression. Not of his own doing. Right. So some of the things, like we mentioned up top, you know, getting into into fights with his legal clients and things. So some of it was the result of his hothead and his mouth and all these insubordination claims. But a lot of it was just the timing. But he's not quitting. He's not quitting. No, he's... That's the lesson of this story. He's bouncing from job to job to job, but he's always finding the next thing. And at no point does he ever just kind of give up and is like, oh, I guess I'm just like the sad sack. I can't hold a job. Woe is me. Yeah, no, he never does that. Um, I don't think he's got that in him. I think that same fire that causes him to get into fistfights is the same fire that keeps kind of propelling him forward and finding the next the next thing. Now, in 1930, the Shell Oil Company offered Sanders a service station in North Corbin, Kentucky, rent-free, in return for paying the company a percentage of sales. He started to serve chicken dishes and other meals, such as country ham and steaks. And initially, he served the customers in his adjacent living quarters before opening a restaurant. Now, for our um, listeners who may not be familiar, I think everybody knows what steak is, but country ham is, I feel think it's, it's like it's a cured. unique american it, food it's basically it's basically very it's salty ham. Salt. yeah it's yep. really salty ham um it's it's good but it makes you very thirsty anyway uh his fried chicken became very popular For about a week after you eat it yeah his fried chicken became very popular and if you've ever fried chicken it's not really a food that you can prepare quickly it takes some time And so customers were waiting way too long for a meal during peak time. So Harlan had to figure out how to get his fried chicken out more quickly. So he started experimenting. And after a lot of trial and error, he finally figured it out. 
He learned how to use a pressure cooker to speed up getting the chicken to his customers. And he also perfected his recipe. You know, the 11 different herbs and spices that are supposedly a big secret. Well, you can find them on the Internet now. We're not going to tell you. But if you do your research and educate yourself, you can probably make your own KFC chicken at home. Now, during his time in Corbin, Sanders even delivered babies. He said in his autobiography, he said there was nobody else to do it. The husbands couldn't afford a doctor when their wives were pregnant. <laughs> well, so Harlan Sanders, jack of all trades. He'll pump your gas. He'll buy your, he'll feed your, your chicken, chicken and deliver, deliver your, your baby. Yep, absolutely. Well, the hot-headed Sanders never backed down from a fight, which served him well in the rough and tough Hell's Half Acre neighborhood that surrounded his shell oil gas station. When the colonel started painting advertising signs on bars for miles around, the aggressive marketing tactic rankled Matt Stewart, who operated a nearby Standard Oil gas station. He was told that Stewart was painting over one of his signs for a second time. Now, Sanders is hot-headed, remember? Mm -hmm. So Sanders rushed to the scene with two Shell executives. According to Josh uh, Ozersky's book, Colonel Sanders and the American Dream, Stewart exchanged his paintbrush for a gun and fatally shot Shell district manager Robert Gibson. Now, I'm going to take that back. He's not hot-headed here. Sanders returned fire and wounded Stewart in the shoulder. Stewart was sentenced to 18 years in prison for murder, but charges against Sanders were dropped after his arrest. And really, what this has effectively did, it eliminated the colonel's competition. I, this story is nuts to me, though, because... Yeah, no, was, I mean, no. It was back in the day. He's kind of hot-headed because he's... he's uh, clearly has a weapon on him as well. That doesn't make him hot-headed. No, but he's rushing, like literally he rushed over to where this guy was and he had a weapon on him and... Well, they I, shot... You know, they the, the other guy shot first. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I'm trying to picture this actually in my Purely head. Purely self-defense. I'm trying to picture this in my mind. These oil executives. So I'm picturing like suit and tie, like button-down... Buttoned up big city oil execs who show up to this Kentucky like fight street fight with guns in hell's half acre. It's, they had stories it's when crazy. they got back. Yeah. I know it's insane. Um, so now Colonel Sanders got out. He was commissioned as a Kentucky colonel in 1935 by Kentucky Governor Ruby Lafoon. Now, explain to me, because you're a Kentucky colonel. I am a Kentucky colonel. And I it, used to get invited to the Kentucky Derby and the barbecue, the governor's barbecue before, but that stopped after a couple moves. Kentucky colonel is an honorary title that someone submits your name to the governor and supposedly you've done something honorary for the state of Kentucky, and they give you a certificate and put you on the rolls as a Kentucky colonel. Right. So it's not an actual military no, not a, at assignment, all. It's, like, it's a, a, like a, what you think of as a colonel. No, not, not like that at all. So his local popularity grew, and in 1939, food critic Duncan Hines of Cake Fame visited Sanders' restaurant and included it in Adventures in Good Eating, which was Duncan Hines' guide to restaurants throughout the U.S. His entry read, Corbin, Kentucky, Sanders Court and Cafe, 41 junction with 25, 25 east, half mile north of Corbin. Open all year except Christmas. A very good place to stop en route to Cumberland Falls and the Great Smokies. Continuous 24-hour service. Sizzling steaks, fried chicken, country ham, hot biscuits. Lunch, 50 cents to a dollar. Dinner, 60 cents to a dollar. I wish you could get dinner for a dollar these days. <laughs> Yep. In July 1939, Sanders acquired a motel in Asheville, North Carolina. His North Corbin restaurant and motel was destroyed in a fire in November 1939, and he had it rebuilt as a motel with a 140-seat restaurant. So he made Just think of lemonade all out of lemons. Multiple times. Yeah. By and sometimes he spilled his lemonade and he had to make <laughs> in, it again. In a bar fight, yeah. yeah. Um, and by July 1940, Sanders had finalized his secret recipe for frying chicken in a pressure fryer that cooked the chicken faster than pan frying. That 
was the big secret right there. Along with yeah. the seven, eleven, that's yeah. how he could crank out yeah. the food so much faster. As the United States entered World War II in December 1941, gas was rationed, and as the tourism dried up, Sanders was forced to close his Asheville motel. He went to work as a supervisor in Seattle until the latter part of 1942, and he later ran cafeterias for the government at an ordinance works in Tennessee, followed by a job as an assistant cafeteria manager in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Now, we haven't really said a whole lot about Colonel Sanders' marriage up to this point, but just he, know... He had a mistress. ...that in as of 1942, he had a mistress by the name of Claudia Leadington Price, and he left her as manager of the North Corbin Restaurant and Motel. Now, we researched her a little bit, and it's a little bit too spicy for an hour of your life, but she was yeah. hired to help out around the house. Yeah, she was the maid. Basically. Essentially. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, talk about your 11 herbs and spices. You got some right here. So, after leaving Claudia as manager of the North, Rest- or North Corbin Restaurant and Motel, um, he sold the Asheville business. And then finally, he and Josephine divorced in 1947. So at least five years after he left Claudia in charge of the restaurant. Um, So, I mean, they've been continuing, presumably continuing on their relationship this entire time. And then after he and Josephine divorced, it still took an extra another two years before he remarried. And um, Harlan finally married Claudia in 1949 as he had long desired. So they were together for a while. He was uh, two-time in both his ladies for a little bit, and then he finally got married. Well, Harlan was recommissioned as a Kentucky colonel in 1950 by his friend, Governor Lawrence Weatherby. Sanders this time embraced the title and tried to look the part by growing facial hair and donning a black frock coat and string tie. Why don't you look the part of a Kentucky Colonel? Can you can you wear like a bolo tie and No, I'm not doing that. Soon <laughs> okay. after the Colonel switched to a white suit, which helped to hide flower stains oh. and bleached his mustache and goatee to match his white hair. His associates went along with the title change, jokingly at first and then in earnest, according to biographer Josh uh, Orzerski. He never wore anything else in public during the last 20 years of his life, using a heavy wool suit in the winter and a light cotton suit in the summer. He bleached his mustache and goatee to match his white hair. I never really thought about the flower thing. Yeah. I I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, he was still apparently very involved with this, but he bleached his mustache and goatee to match his white head. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> now, in 1952, Sanders franchised his secret we- recipe Kentucky Fried Chicken for the first time to Pete Harmon, no relation, of South Salt Lake, Utah, the operator of one of that city's largest restaurants. In the first year of selling the product, restaurant sales more than tripled, with 75% of the increase coming from sales of fried chicken. That chicken's good. It is good. For Harmon, the addition of fried chicken was a way of differentiating his restaurant from competitors because in Utah, a product hailing from Kentucky was unique and kind of evoked the imagery of Southern hospitality and warmth. Y'all. Yeah, exactly. So Don Anderson, a sign painter who was hired by Harmon. Careful with that sign painting. (laughs) You don't want to get shot. No, not (laughs) signs. So he coined the name Kentucky Fried Chicken. After Harmon's success, several other restaurant owners franchised the concept and paid Sanders four cents per chicken, which doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah, but over the years, he's yeah, I gone guess through. I mean, four cents—that's a, a lot of chicken. Yeah, like McDonald's. How many cows have they gone through? Ooh, I don't even want to know. Sanders believed that his North Corbin restaurant would remain successful indefinitely, but again, fate stepped in, and at age sixty-five. Uh, it sold after the new Interstate 75 reduced customer traffic. I think this seems like a thing. Um, you know, there were a lot of he's a victim small, of circumstances really, a lot of times, and and I think uh, development kind of affected a lot of things. I think um, you know that was part of probably part of the reason why he left the rail industry a little bit. Maybe is because 
um, as more trucks started to get on the road, there were probably less need for as many trains. Um, and like a lot of small mom and pop shops on it's kind of famous on route 66 that when the interstate came along, a lot of those mom and pop shops closed up. I think he may have had a passion for cooking all along. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. So left with only his savings and $105 a month from social security, Sanders decided to begin to franchise his chicken concept in earnest and traveled the U S looking for suitable restaurants. After closing the North Corbin site, Sanders and Claudia opened a new restaurant and company headquartered in Shelbyville in 1959. Many times they had to sleep in the back of his car. Now, he's an old man now. Yeah, he and was still 65. And sleeping in the back of his car. So, I mean, it wasn't like he was rich, you know, this whole time and everything. I yeah. Mean, I okay. feel like he had ebbs and flows because at one point he was relative. I mean, $339,000 is nothing yeah. to sneeze at, but now he's sleeping in the back of his car at 65 yeah. years no. old. Sanders visited restaurants, offered to cook his chicken, and if workers liked it, he negotiated out franchise rights with them. Hmm. Although such visits required much time, eventually uh, potential franchises began visiting Sanders instead. So it, it Started, That's how you know you're growing. getting successful. Yeah. He ran the company while Claudia mixed and shipped the spices to restaurants. So it's a small family still, business right yeah. now. The franchise approach uh, became highly successful. KFC was one of the first fast food chains to expand internationally, opened outlets in Canada, later in the UK, Mexico, and Jamaica by the mid-1960s. And then I said in the 80s, I was I could have had fried chicken KFC fried chicken in Germany. There you go. Uh, Sanders obtained a patent protecting his method of pressure frying chicken in 1962 and trademarked the phrase, it's finger licking good in 1963. (laughs) The company's rapid expansion to more than 600 locations became overwhelming for the aging Sanders. In 1964, then 73 years old, he sold the Kentucky Fried Chicken Corporation for $2 million dollars which would be about $16.7 million today, to a partnership of Kentucky businessmen headed by John Y. Brown Jr., who was a 29-year-old lawyer and future governor of the state of Kentucky, and Jack C. Massey, a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. Now, we don't really, we didn't really talk about it, um, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of information on it. So, so I'm really curious as to what his daughters were doing during all of this time. Um, we weren't really able to find much about it, so we don't really know. But it's, I think that's interesting that they, the girls weren't really involved. And in, I mean, they're adults at this point, um, but they didn't seem to want to take on any of the well, family I, business. I don't think it was surprising because it wasn't that big, so they probably just married and moved on and yeah, with their own I, lives. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he's living in his car sometimes. Yeah, I and I again, I wonder if that's a Here, you all have the front seat and I'll yeah, stay in the yeah, back seat. Well, yeah, I mean, they were I'm sure they were married off, but even still, I that's interesting too, thinking of um I wonder if his son had lived if it would have been a little bit different because um, you know, in the time period, the the girls could get married off and they didn't necessarily feel like they had a stake in the family business. But if his son had survived, I wonder if he would have kind of been expected to well, carry on his father's business. Maybe as we get on the story successful. about all the uh, changes after he died with all yeah. the, yeah, the commercial parts of it, maybe his son would have been the new colonel. I yeah, don't know. That, yeah, that but we'll get to that interesting. later. Um, okay, so Sanders became a salaried brand ambassador. The initial deal did not include the Canadian operations, which Sanders retained, or the franchising rights in the UK, Florida, Utah, and Montana areas, which Sanders had already sold to others. In 1965, Sanders moved to Mississauga, Mississauga, Ontario, to oversee his Canadian franchises and continue to collect franchise and appearance fees both in Canada and in the U.S. He bought and lived in a bungalow at 1337 Melton Drive, in the Lakeview area of Mississauga from 1965 until his death in 1980. In September 1970, he and his wife were baptized in the Jordan River, and he befriended Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell. So he appears to have, if he was not a religious man before, um, later in his life he became so. He remained the company's symbol after selling it, 
traveling 200,000 miles a year on the company's behalf and filming many TV commercials and appearances, which you can easily find on YouTube. If you want to see the authentic Colonel Sanders, um, there's plenty of opportunity for, for you to do that. He retained a lot of his influence over executives and franchisees who respected his culinary expertise and feared what the New Yorker described as, quote, the force and variety of his swearing when a restaurant or the company varied from what executive described as the colonel's chicken. He reminds me a little bit of, um, who is it, Gordon Ramsay? that like yells at all of his, like the chef guy that yells at yeah. all of it. He's like an old timey Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. He said, I used to cuss the prettiest you ever heard, Sanders admitted. I did my cussing before women or anybody else, but somehow nobody ever took any offense. The Colonel may have appeared the epitome of a Southern gentleman, but his language was notoriously salty, particularly when he wasn't pleased with the quality of food served up by franchisees. One change the company made to his recipe was the gravy, which Sanders had bragged about was so good, it'll make you throw away the darn chicken and just eat the gravy, but which the company simplified to reduce time and cost. In 1973, Sanders sued Hublin Incorporated and then the parent company of Kentucky Fried Chicken over the alleged misuse of his image in promoting, uh, promoting products he had not helped develop. Mm. In 1975, Heblin Incorporated unsuccessfully sued Sanders for libel after he publicly described her gravy as being sludge with the wallpaper taste. I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> he also <laughs> called its owners a bunch of booze hounds. <laughs> as of late 1979, Sanders made surprise visits to KFC restaurants, and if the food disappointed him... He denounced it to the uh, to the franchisees as, and I'll paraphrase this, as gosh darn slop. <laughs> it's a family show. And pushed it onto the floor. As one does. <laughs> Although still the public face of the company, Sanders so disliked Kentucky Fried Chicken's food that he developed <laughs> plans to franchise the Colonel's Ladies Dinner Restaurant, Dinner House Restaurant. Sanders and his wife reopened their Shelbyville restaurant as Claudia Sanders in 1968 as a competitor. The Colonel's ladies served the KFC-style chicken there as part of a full-service dinner menu and talked about expanding the restaurant into a chain. Can you imagine if you were one of the patrons of, like, a KFC franchise and, <laughs> and you Colonel come walks and the Colonel in. walks in and, like, you think that it's going to be this super cool, oh, my gosh, look, there's the Colonel. And he throws and then your he's gravy like, on the and throws, throws, throws it, on the it on the floor. He maybe is not as wholesome as his image would have you believe. Uh, by this time, I think he just call him cantankerous. Uh, I guess. Now, when Hugh Blend heard about this, the parent company heard about um, the Colonel's lady. They threatened to block the plan, and so Sanders sued them for 122 million. The two sides settled out of court with Sanders receiving $1 million and a chance to give a cooking lesson to their executives <laughs> in return for his promise to stop criticizing Kentucky Fried Chicken's food. I'll teach y'all how to <laughs> fry chicken and I'll stop talking bad about <laughs> you. Pretty much. He sold the Colonel's Lady restaurant and it has continued to operate currently as the Claudia Sanders Dinner House. Uh, I think that I have been there once before. And it's it's like a restaurant restaurant like it's it's pretty yeah. nice. You they have weddings and stuff that people do there. Um, it serves his original recipe fried chicken as part of its non fast food dinner menu. Um, and so it's not like what you think of as a KFC at all. Like it's a nice place. Um, it's the only non KFC. <laughs> not that I didn't mean it like that, but like it's it's a fancier it, it's, restaurant. It's a nicer sit down. It's a very upscale yeah. restaurant. Yeah. It's the only non-KFC restaurant that serves an authorized version of the fried chicken recipe. Sanders remained critical of Kentucky Fried Chicken's food, though, in spite of the fact that he said he was going to stop. In the late 1970s, he told the Louisville Courier-Journal, My God, that gravy is horrible. They buy tap water for 15 to 20 cents a thousand gallons, and then they mix it with flour and starch and end up with pure wallpaper paste. And I know wallpaper paste by God because I've seen my mother make it. There's no nutrition in it and they ought not to be allowed to sell it. Crispy recipe is nothing in the world but a damn fried dough ball stuck on some chicken. 
I agree, Colonel. <laughs> yeah, well. I did not like the crispy recipe. He didn't like it, and he didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Where Big Chicken took his his chicken. Right? So, yeah. Well, uh, the colonel was diagnosed with acute leukemia in June 1980. He died at Jewish Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, of pneumonia on December 16, 1980, at the age of 90. Sanders remained active until the month before his death, appearing in his white suit to crowds and stopping in at KFCs, sampling the gravy and the food, and throwing it on the floor if he wasn't happy. <laughs> his body lay in state in the rotunda of the Kentucky State Capitol in Frankfurt, and after a funeral service at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary Chapel, which was attended by more than a 1,000 people. Wow. Sanders was uh, buried in his characteristic white suit and black western string tie in Cave Hill Cemetery in Louisville, Kentucky. By the time of Sanders' death, there was an estimated 6,000 KFC outlets in 48 countries worldwide with $2 billion, that is $6.3 billion today, of sales annually. John Y. Brown Jr. remembered Sanders as a brilliant man with a gourmet flair for food and a visionary and a great motivator uh, with the style of a showman and the discipline of Vince Lombardi. I could see that. That's a that's interesting, yeah. Legend has it that Sanders put a hex on the Hanshin Tigers after the baseball team's joyous fans celebrated a 1985 championship by tossing his statue taken from a local Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant into an Osaka River. The team's subsequent championship drought was blamed on the curse of the colonel, but even the 2009 recovery of the statue from the muddy river bottom has yet to result in another title of the t- for the team. Remember, that happened in 1985, and to this day, they still haven't won a championship. A fictionalized Colonel Sanders has repeatedly appeared as a mascot in KFC's advertising and branding. Sanders has been voiced by many impressionists in radio ads from 1998 to 2001. An animated version of him voiced by Randy Quaid appeared in television commercials. In May 2015, KFC brought the Colonel Sanders character back in new television advertisements played by comedian Daryl Hammond. Some commentators felt the new portrayal was distasteful and disrespectful of the actual man's legacy. In August 2015, KFC launched a new campaign, this time with comedian Norm MacDonald portraying Sanders. The first ad of the campaign makes direct reference to the Hammond campaign with a brief piece of footage of Hammond followed by McDonald's colonels declaring his predecessor as an imposter. In February 2016, yet another portrayal was introduced with Jim Gaffigan as the colonel, shown bolting awake in bed and telling his wife about the recurring nightmare of McDonald's colonel pretending to be me. In July 2016, George Hamilton was playing Colonel Sanders, parlaying his famous tan into an advertisement for KFC's Extra Crispy Chicken. I remember those, and I thought they were pretty funny. Um, During the airing of the 2016 Summer Slam, a commercial aired of WWE wrestler Dolph Ziggler dressed up as Colonel Sanders, beating up a man in a chicken suit, Playing by or played by fellow wrestler The Miz in a rec- wrestling ring, and I'm guessing that Dolph Ziggler had no idea how accurate his portrayal probably really was. In September 2016, comedian Rob Riggle played Sanders in an ad introducing a football team named the Kentucky Buckets. In January 2017, to advertise their Georgia Gold Honey Mustard Barbecue Chicken offerings, actor Billy Zane took over the role as the Solid Gold Colonel. You know, it's kind of prophetic here. With all the jobs and now all, all the, the people colonels? doing this, you know, I'm, and this is where I'm talking about. If his son had lived, would his son have taken Maybe. over and been the colonel and been the the voice in the face and continue that? I don't know. Wait till we get to the end of all of these, and I tell you about the most recent version of the colonel. In April 2017, actor Rob Lowe was announced as the newest actor in the role of Colonel Sanders. Lowe said that as a child. He actually got to meet Harlan Sanders. Oh, that's cool. WWE would return to using Colonel Sanders during 2017, showing ads of Shawn Michaels and Kurt Angel playing him, as well as announcing that Colonel Sanders would be available as a playable character in WWE <laughs> 2K18 as a part of the product placement deal with KFC. <laughs> Ray Liotta then portrayed Sanders. Singer Reber McIntyre 
was named as the newest Sanders in January 2018. As of, and I don't like those commercials for whatever reason. Reba's I, commercials? I don't, I don't like Reba's commercials. As of August 2018, actor Jason Alexander and professional strongman and actor, whoa, Hafor Julius Bjornsson both portray Colonel Sanders. Did I say that right? I, I think it's so. It's close enough. Close enough. In early 2019, Peter Weller portrayed a RoboCop version of Colonel Sanders. Later that year, Sean Astin played a Rudy Rudiger version of the Colonel to commemorate the beginning of the NFL season. And in our most recent iteration of Colonel Harlan Sanders, Mario Lopez uh, did a Lifetime mini-movie called A Recipe for Seduction uh, back in 2020. It's 15 minutes, and I am going to try to see if we can't get the trailer linked on our Facebook page. It's really funny. Um, It is very tongue-in-cheek, uh, and I would love so much to watch this film, quote unquote film, which I think you can find on YouTube. In 2019, a free video game was commissioned by the restaurant chain KFC and released for free called I Love You, Colonel Sanders, a parody of conventional dating sims. The primary objective of the player is to develop a romantic relationship with a fictionalized version of KFC's founder, Colonel Sanders, played as an attractive classmate at a cooking school. Kind of ties in with the whole Mario Lopez thing a little bit. Um, and Because that happened not too long afterwards. Um, that was the, the hot Colonel Sanders um, came out in December 2020. Characters based on Colonel Sanders have appeared in popular fiction. The Colonel appears as a character within the DC Comics multiverse in three promotional issues with titles parodying other DC Comics titles. A Colonel of Two Worlds, which is a parody of Flash of Two Worlds. The Colonel Corps, The Crisis of Infinite Colonels, which is a parody of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And Across the Universe, teaming up with characters such as Green Lantern and Flash and alternate versions of himself, such as a female version, a Teen Titans Go version, and a chicken version to battle villains like the Anti-Colonel of Earth-3, Colonel Grodd, which is a colonel version of Gorilla Grodd, and Larflees. The writer of the comics, Tony Bettard, said, It's been an honor, a privilege, and just plain fun working on the last two KFC comics. I'm super excited the story is a trilogy now, with the colonel planet hopping across the DC universe as a former Green Lantern writer. It's it's great to revisit Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps. In the novel Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami, Colonel Sanders appears when an abstract concept takes on the appearance of a famous capitalist icon. In 2017, KFC released a 96-page romance novella, Tender Wings of Desire, in time for Mother's Day. Set in Victorian England, it centers on Lady Madeline Parker, who must choose between a life of order and a man of passion, and featuring Sanders as the love interest and ostensibly the writer. It's available on Amazon for free. One of the Colonel's white suits with its black clip-on bow tie was sold at auction for $21,510 by Heritage Auctions on June 22, 2013. The suit has been given to Cincinnati resident Mike Morris by Sanders, who was close to the Morris family. The Morris family house was purchased by Colonel Sanders, and Sanders lived with the family for six months. The suit was purchased by Kentucky Fried Chicken of Japan by President Meizo Charlie Watanabe. Watanabe uh, put on the famous suit after placing the winning bid at the auction event in Dallas, Texas. Ooh, I feel like if you're going to buy something like that, you probably wouldn't put it on, right? Like you risk ripping seams and stuff. That's not a cheap suit. Anyway, in 2011, a manuscript of a book on cooking that Sanders apparently wrote in the mid-1960s was found in KFC archives. It included some cooking recipes from Sanders, as well as anecdotes and life lessons. KFC said it was planning on trying some of the recipes and to publish the 200-page manuscript online. In 2010, the Oscar-winning animated short Logorama prominently featured a rotoscopied depiction of Colonel Sanders during the early fast food restaurant scenes. 
Before his death, Sanders used his stock holdings to create the Colonel Harlan Sanders Charitable Organization, a registered Canadian charity. The Wings of Mississauga Hospital for Women's and Children's Care is named the Colonel Harlan Sanders Family Care Center in honor of his substantial donation. Sanders Foundation has also made sizable donations to other Canadian children's hospitals, including the McMaster Children's Hospital, IWK Health Center, and Stollery Children's Hospital. The Toronto-based foundation has dispersed $500,000 to other Canadian charities in 2016, according to um, its tax return filed with the Canada Revenue Agency. In 1989, the former Sanders Cafe in Corbin, which had become a regular KFC, underwent retro renovation. The cafe is recognized as the original restaurant because that's where he perfected his recipe. It reopened on September 9th, 1990, which would have been the Colonel's 100th birthday. The restaurant is on one side of the building and the other side is a museum and is restored to the 1940s version of the cafe. It highlights his office, dining room, and the kitchen where he perfected KFC. There's even a sign that says he perfected his secret recipe. And that is the story of Colonel Harlan David Sanders. Yeah, he's it's, quite it's the guy. He's a pretty, really interesting guy. It's impressive. And I think that you're going to find that a lot in this series, is that the these people that we consume their food on a regular basis... They're quite the characters. He didn't quit. He, he did I mean, not with, quit. With all the adversity that he faced, oh, yeah. either of his own creating or... He seemed to mellow out a little bit in some areas. Like He was throwing he older. food on the restaurant okay. the <laughs> but, month before he died. He didn't but, mellow out a bit. But he also donated a bunch of money to women and children. Okay, he had but... a big heart. He, he had a big heart, but... <laughs> he has that hot temper... He, he, I mean, his food was his passion. It was. I mean, up until the month before he died, he would, he might uh, walk into the KFC restaurant, slop. And say, "This is slop," and throw it <laughs> on the floor. Who, who's the manager here? I need to speak with your manager, Harlan Sanders, the ultimate Karen. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I don't even put him in that category. No, he no. it was his business. It was his recipe. He had every right to call it slop if you wanted <laughs> to call it slop. You weren't making it right. That's right. Anyway. Oh, my goodness. Well, there you go. Story of Colonel Sanders. All right. I love that story. I do, too. Yeah. He's quite the character. I now want some fried chicken. I kind of do, too. Maybe we should have KFC for dinner tomorrow night. We can do that. In honor of Colonel Harlan Sanders. <laughs> and I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to taste the gravy. No, you are not. No, I, I would never do that. Anyway. So anyway, Kim. <laughs> what? How do people get hold of us? You can go to anhourofyourlife.com. Find out all you ever wanted to know. Well, maybe not all you ever wanted to know about us, but some stuff you want to know about us. Um, you can also email us there. You can email us directly at alosthour at gmail.com and find us on all the socials, although we're not as active on Twitter as we probably should be. Yeah. And so if you like the show, tell somebody about it. Yeah. Yeah. Just tell somebody about it. And, uh, you know, they may be interested in the Colonel Sanders story or some of the other stories we've told. I would also like to say thank you to, there are a couple of people in our immediate sphere of influence who um, I just don't really think about them listening to our show because they talk to us all the time and they're like our friends and I just don't think about them. Um, but thank you to those of you who, who have in the last, I would say probably month, I've had just random people be like, hey, I listen to your show. And, and I really liked, or I really liked the show this week or whatever. And people that I don't even think about listening to our show. So if that's you, thank you so much. Um, we, we really do like knowing that people are listening and we have people that, that have recently kind of wanted to start talking about the show and like discuss recent episodes and stuff. And we absolutely live for that stuff. So if you want to contact us, you're really, we're, you're, you're not like bothering us or anything. We really would love to talk with you. And if you are local in the Dayton, Miami Valley, the 937 area code, you might want to listen to uh, the 937 podcast mm -hmm. that we're putting out every week right now. Yep. That uh, it'll just tell you what's going on in the Dayton. It's kind of focused on the next weekend coming up. Yeah, I look for it usually on Thursday mornings. But if you're, if you're like, I don't know what to do this weekend, listen to it. It'll come out on Thursday mornings mm -hmm. and it'll give you an idea of what's going on. 
We've got some, we try to feature local businesses. This month we're featuring Fifth Street Brew Pub. Um, and there's also an interview with Nan Whaley, Dayton Mayor on there. So all kinds of good stuff. If you just kind of want to check out what we're doing. All right. Anything else? I think that's it. All right. So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. In addition to the aforementioned autobiographies and biographies, sources this week include History.com, Wikipedia, RoadsideAmerica.com, and KentuckyTourism.com. Enjoy your slop!